Section 39 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. The Great Explorers and Travelers of the 19th Century. By Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 3, Part 1. Polar Expeditions. 4. On the 22nd and 23rd, the survey of this coast was continued. On the second day, an iceberg, soldered to the coast, compelled the vessels to turn back towards the north, whilst at the same time a sudden and violent snowstorm overtook and separated them. The Zulie especially sustained considerable damage, but was able to rejoin her consort the next day. Throughout it all, however, sight of the land had not, so to speak, been lost, but on the twenty-ninth the wind blew so strongly and persistently from the east that Durville had to abandon the survey of Adélie land. It was on this same day that he sighted the vessels of Lieutenant Wilkes. Durville complains of the discourtesy of the latter, and says that his own manoeuvres, intended to open communications with them, had been misunderstood by the Americans. We are no longer, he says, in the days when navigators, in the interests of commerce, thought it necessary carefully to conceal their route and their discoveries, to avoid the competition of rival nations. I should, on the contrary, have been glad to point out to our emulators the result of our researches, in the hope that such information might be of use to them and increase our geographical knowledge. On the 30th of January a huge wall of ice was sighted, as to the nature of which opinions were divided. Some said it was a compact and isolated mass. Others, and this was Durville's opinion, thought these lofty mountains had a base of earth or of rocks, or that they might even be bulwarks of a huge extent of land, which they called Clary. It is situated in 128 degrees eastern longitude. The officers had collected sufficient information in these latitudes to determine the position of the southern magnetic pole, but the results obtained by them did not accord with those given by Duperey, Wilkes, and Ross. On the 17th of February, the two corvettes once more cast anchor off Hobartstown, and on the 25th set sail again for New Zealand, where they completed the hydrographical service of the Yuani. They then made for New Guinea, ascertained that it was not separated by a strait from the Louisiana archipelago, Sarvit Torres Strait with the greatest care, in spite of dangers from currents, coral reefs, etc., arrived at Timor on the 20th, and returned to Toulon on the 8th November, after touching at Bourbon and St. Helena. When the news of the grand discoveries made by the United States reached England, a spirit of emulation was aroused, and the learned societies decided on sending an expedition to the regions in which Weddell and Biscoe had been the only explorers since the time of Cook. Captain James Clark Ross, who was appointed to the command of this expedition, was the nephew of the famous John Ross, explorer of Baffin's Bay. Born in 1800, James Ross was a sailor from the age of twelve. He accompanied his uncle in 1818 in his first Arctic expedition, had taken part under Parry in four expeditions to the same latitudes, and from 1829 to 1833 he had been his uncle's constant and faithful companion. Entrusted with the taking of scientific observations, he had discovered the North Magnetic Pole. 
and he had also made a good many excursions across the ice on foot and in sledges. He was, therefore, now one of the most experienced of British naval officers in polar expeditions. Two vessels, the Erebus and the Terror, were entrusted to him, and his second in command was an accomplished sailor, Captain Francis Roden Crozier, companion of Perry in 1824, of Ross in 1835 in Baffins Bay, and the future companion of Franklin in the Terror, in his search for the Northwest Passage. It would have been impossible to find a braver or more experienced sailor. The instructions given to James Ross by the Admiralty differed essentially from those received by Wilkes and Durmont d'Arville. For the latter, the exploration of the Antarctic regions was but one incident of their voyage round the world, whereas it was the very raison d'être of Ross's journey. Of the three years he would be away from Europe, the greater part was to be spent in the Antarctic regions, and he would only leave the ice to repair the damages to his vessels, or recruit the health of his crew, worn out as they would probably be by fatigue and sickness. The vessels had been equally judiciously chosen, stronger than those of Durville, they were better fitted to resist the repeated assaults of the ice, and their seasoned crews had been chosen from sailors familiar with polar navigation. The Erebus and Terror, under the command of Ross and Crozier, left England on the 29th of September, 1839, and touched successively at Madeira, the Cape Verde Islands, St. Helena, and the Cape of Good Hope, where numerous magnetic observations were taken. On the 12th of April, Ross reached Kerguelen's Island, and there landed the instruments. The scientific harvest was abundant. Some fossil trees were extracted from the lava, of which this island is formed, and some rich layers of coal were discovered, which have not yet been worked. The twenty-ninth was fixed for simultaneous magnetic observations in different parts of the globe, and, by a singular coincidence, some magnetic storms, such as had already visited Europe, were on this very day observed in these latitudes. The instrument registered the same phenomena as at Toronto, Canada proving the vast extent of these meteoric disturbances, and incredible rapidity with which they spread. On his arrival at Hobart Town, where his old friend John Franklin was now governor, Ross heard of the discovery of Adélie and of Plarilens by the French, and the simultaneous survey of them by Wilkes, who had even left a sketch of his map of the coasts. Ross, however, decided to make for eastern longitude 170 degrees, because it was in that direction that Baleny had found an open sea extending to southern latitude 69 degrees. He duly reached first the Auckland and then the Campbell Islands, and after having, like his predecessors, tacked about a great deal in a sea strewn with ice islands, he came beyond the 63rd degree to the edge of the stationary ice, and on the 1st of January 1841 crossed the Antarctic Circle. The floating ice did not in any respect resemble that of the Arctic regions, as James Ross very soon discovered. It consisted of huge blocks, with regular and vertical walls, whilst the ice-fields, less compact than those of the north, move about in chaotic confusion, looking, to quote Wilkes' imaginative simile, like a heaving land, as they alternately break away from each other and reunite. To Ross, the ice barrier did not present so formidable an appearance as it had done to the French and the Americans. He did not at first venture upon it, however, being kept in the offing by storms. 
not until the fifth of january was he able to penetrate to southern latitude sixty six degrees forty five minutes and eastern longitude one hundred and seventy four degrees sixteen minutes circumstances could not have been more favorable for the sea and wind were both acting upon and loosening the ice and thanks to the strength of his vessels ross was able to cut a passage as he advanced further and further southward the fog became denser and the constant snowstorms added to the already serious dangers of navigation encouraged however by the reflection in the sky of an open sea a phenomenon which turned out to be trustworthy he pushed on and on the ninth of january after crossing two hundred miles of ice he actually entered that open sea on the eleventh of january land was sighted one hundred miles ahead in southern latitude seventy degrees forty seven minutes and eastern longitude one hundred and seventy two degrees thirty six minutes this the most southern land ever yet discovered consisted of snow-clad peaks with glaciers sloping down to the sea the peaks rising to a height of from nine to twelve thousand feet this estimate judging from d'urville's remark on graham's land may however possibly be an exaggerated one here there and everywhere black rocks rose up from the snow but the coast was so shut in with ice that landing was impossible this curious series of huge peaks received the name of admiralty chain and the country itself that of victoria a few little islands were made out in the southeast before the vessels left this coast and on the twelfth of january the two captains with some of their officers disembarked on one of the volcanic islets and took possession of it in the name of england not the slightest trace of vegetation was found upon it ross soon ascertained that the eastern side of this vast land sloped towards the south whilst the northern stretched away to the northwest he therefore skirted along the eastern beach forcing a passage in a southerly direction beyond the magnetic pole which he places near southern latitude seventy six degrees and then returning by the west thus entirely circumnavigating his new discovery which he looked upon as a very large island the mountain chain extends all along the coast ross gave to the principal peaks the names of herschel hewell wheatstone marchinson and melbourne he was unable however on account of the ever-increasing quantity of ice about the coast to make out the details of its outlines on the twenty-third of january the seventy-four degree the most southerly latitude ever reached was passed the vessels were now considerably hampered by fogs southerly gales and violent snowstorms but they managed to continue their cruise along the coast and on the twenty-seventh of january the english disembarked on a little volcanic island in southern latitude seventy-six degrees eight minutes and eastern longitude one hundred and sixty-eight degrees twelve minutes to which they gave the name of franklin the next day a huge mountain was seen which rose abruptly to a height of twelve thousand feet above a far-stretching land the summit of regular form and completely covered with snow was every now and then wrapped in a thick cloud of smoke no less than three hundred feet in diameter taking this diameter as a standard of measure the height of the cloud in shape like an inverted cone would be about one half of it when this cloud of smoke dispersed a bare crater was discovered lit up by a bright red glow visible even in broad daylight the sides of the mountain were covered with snow up to the very crater and it was impossible to make out any signs of a flow of lava 
a volcano is always a magnificent spectacle and the sight of this one rising up from amongst the antarctic ice and excelling etna and tenerife in its marvellous activity could not fail to make a vivid impression upon the minds of the explorers the name of erebus was given to it and that of terror to an extinct crater on the east of it both titles being admirably appropriate the two vessels continued their cruise along the northern coast of victoria until their further passage was barred by a huge mass of ice towering five hundred and five feet above their masts behind this barrier rose another mountain chain which sunk out of sight in the south-southeast and to which the name of parry was given ross skirted along the ice barrier in an easterly direction until the second february when he reached southern latitude seventy-eight degrees four minutes the most southerly point attained on this trip during which he had followed the shores of the land he had discovered for more than three hundred miles he left it in easterly longitude one hundred and ninety-one degrees twenty-three minutes but for the strong favourable winds which now blew it seems probable that the vessel would never have issued in safety from amongst the formidable ice masses through which they finally worked their way at the cost of incredible exertions and fatigues and in face of incessant danger on the fifteenth of february yet another attempt was made in southern latitude seventy six degrees to reach the magnetic pole but further progress was barred by land in southern latitude seventy six degrees twelve minutes and eastern longitude one hundred and sixty four degrees that is sixty five ordinary miles from the position assigned to it the magnetic pole by ross and the appearance of this land was forbidding and the sea so rough that the explorer gave up all idea of continuing his research on shore after identifying the islands discovered in eighteen thirty nine by balleny ross found himself on the sixth of march amongst the mountains alluded to by wilkes on the fourth of march says ross's narrative they recrossed the antarctic circle and being necessarily close by the eastern extreme of those patches of land which lieutenant wilkes has called the antarctic continent and having reached the latitude on the fifth they steered directly for them and at noon of the sixth the ship being exactly over the centre of this mountain range they could obtain no soundings with six hundred fathoms of line and having traversed a space of eighty miles in every direction from this spot during beautiful clear weather which extended their vision widely around were obliged to confess that this position at least of the pseudo-antarctic continent and the nearly two hundred miles of barrier represented to extend from it have no real existence the expedition got back to tasmania without having a single case of sickness on board or sustaining the slightest damage the vessels were here refitted and the instruments regulated before starting on a second trip on which sydney and islands bay new zealand and chatham were the first stations touched at by ross to make magnetic observations on the eighteenth of december in southern latitude sixty two degrees forty minutes and eastern longitude one hundred and forty six minutes ice was encountered three hundred miles further north than in the preceding year the vessels had arrived too early but ross nevertheless endeavoured to break through this formidable barrier after penetrating for three hundred miles he was stopped by masses so compact that it was impossible to go further and he did not cross the antarctic circle until the first of january eighteen forty two on the nineteenth of the same month the two vessels encountered the most violent storms just as they were entering an open sea 
the Erebus and Terror lost their helms, floating ice washed over them, and for twenty-six hours they were in danger of going down. The detention of the expedition amongst the ice lasted no less than forty-six days, and not until the twenty-second did Ross reach the great barrier of stationary ice, which was considerably lower beyond Erebus, where it was no less than two hundred feet high. When Ross came to it this year, it was only 107 feet high, and it was 150 miles further east than it had been on the previous expedition. The acquisition of this piece of geographical information was the only result of this arduous campaign, extending over 136 days, and greatly excelling in dramatic interest the preceding expedition. The vessels now made for Cape Horn, and sailed up the coast as far as Rio de Janeiro, where they found everything of which they stood in need. As soon as they had laid in a stock of provisions, they again put to sea, and reached the Falkland Islands, whence, on the 17th of December, 1842, they started on their third trip. The first ice was this time met with near Clarence Island, and on the 27th of December, Ross found his further progress barred by it. He then made for the New Shetland Islands, completed the survey of Louis Philippe and Jeanville lands, discovered by Durmont Tourville, named Mounts Haddington and Perry, ascertained that Louis Philippe's land is only a large island, and visited Bransfield Strait, separating it from Shetland. Such were the marvellous results obtained by James Ross in his three expeditions. To assign to the three explorers, whose work in the Antarctic regions we have been reviewing, his just meat of praise, we may say that Durville first discovered the Antarctic continent, Wilkes traced its shores for a considerable distance, for we cannot fail to recognize the resemblance between his map and that of the French navigator, and that James Ross visited the most southerly and most interesting part. But is there such a continent after all? Durville was not quite sure about it and Ross did not believe in it. We must leave the decision of this great question to the later explorers, who were to follow in the footsteps of the intrepid sailors, whose voyages and discoveries we have related. End of section 39